Welcome to the Band About podcast series. Joining me in the engine room today is an Adelaide drummer that I first met late in 2017. I got to know both he and his bandmates when I began helping them with publicity on their Facebook page. It is my great pleasure to welcome Michael Jafrida. Thank you for making time to chat with me today. Thank you, Di. It's a, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I know we've been meaning to uh, team up and chat for a while. So here we are and uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you. Excellent. Well, let's start from the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Adelaide, South Australia at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Okay. And what area did you grow up in? So I grew up in the West. I was born in Cheltenham and then we moved to Woodville and now I'm back in Pennington. So I'm a, I'm a Western boy through and through, a beach baby and have sort of um, grown up in the West all my life. My family's, uh, lots of my family are here. Very fortunate to live a stone's throw away from most of my really good friends. Hence why I haven't moved anywhere because it's just too comfy and just too nice here in the West. Yeah. Cool. Do either of your parents have a musical background or anyone else in your family? Um, as far as a musical background goes, no. I have a, uh, I have a distant cousin who was a drummer and I remember as a young man hopping on his drum kit and having a go, but that didn't trigger anything back then. That was a long, long, I would have been four or five. In my immediate family, nobody. I, uh, I come from a dad's Italian, my mum's Irish. Um, so I guess both sets of um, grandparents and parents had, uh, you know, obviously coming here from other countries a long time ago. They didn't have that, that musical thing in their bones. It was, it was more of a work ethic. They've come to a new country to establish a new life and they just worked really hard and there was sort of no, no, um, no music there except for my father who handed me record after record of just great bands and that's where my obsession for music started. So not, not being inspired by an instrument so much, more mm. you know, grabbing onto records and CDs and, and, and connecting with music as a you know, I guess as a, as a product and as something that I could do in, you know, in my spare time as a kid. Okay. So what led or who influenced you to actually start playing drums? Well, I had a next door neighbor, uh, named Frank, uh, Frank Kinnear, who is also a great drummer. He had a great big red shiny pearl drum kit and there was Oh, it was just the best thing in the world to me because um, nothing excited me more than a great big shiny red pearl drum kit. So I could hear him play and I was excited and he would invite me over and I'd watch him. And, and one day he gave me a practice pad, just a homemade, very, very crude practice pad that he stapled together himself with some wood glue and put a piece of plastic or rubber over the top. And so he said, here's your sticks, here's your practice pad, just do that for a few months and then you can have a turn on my kit. Funny story, he told me one day that I could borrow his drum kit when he went on holidays and I was very much looking forward to this. And one day I come home with a friend 
and my friend catches something in the corner of his eye and he goes, Michael, there's a drum kit in your room. And I said, oh, awesome. Frank must have lent me the drum kit. Hmm. And he goes, no, it's a blue one. And so I freaked out. I knew then and there that my dad had gone and gotten me a, a nice mahogany shell Yamaha drum kit, 80s style drum kit. And I was just over the moon and I remember crying. Thank you, dad. It was, it was just, yeah, amazing getting my first drum kit. So that's how it all started. My neighbor, Frank. Wow. That's great. Where did you go to school? I went to school. Primary school was Mount Carmel Primary um, here in Pennington. So, you know, sort of got brought up as a, as a, um, a half-assed Catholic, I guess. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, sort of, you know, went through there. And then obviously I was expressing, you know, my interest in music around 10 or 11. I think I was like year six or seven when I really started to pick up the sticks. And then we were looking at, you know, furthering my, my music. So we chose Woodville High, which was around the corner. And that obviously has a special music program. Mm. And so I auditioned and had this big drum solo prepared. Um, and I remember the, uh, the head of music just waving his hands halfway through my audition, asking me to stop. This was, you know, about five minutes into my solo. <laughs> and mm. uh, he just goes, stop, stop. You're in. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was, uh, that was uh, a fond memory. And yeah. so, yeah, continued through, yeah, Woodville High. And, um, and yeah, so that was, that was my schooling up until that point. I had some private tuition from a drummer named Frank Fragamini who played with E-Type Jazz for years. So mm. I sort of I had my formal training with him. And obviously with um, Woodville High School as well, which was more um, ensemble based. Lots of, you know, stage band, concert band, guitar ensemble, you know, drum line, all, all different sorts of percussion. And yeah, so, you know, even before I was 18, I had a pretty solid foundation and knew where I wanted to go with my music. Oh, that's excellent. So what was the first band that you joined? Oh, the first band that I joined. This was while I was still in high school. Right. And I wasn't uh, going to pubs or clubs. Uh, a dad, my dad's friend, all I did was play with my dad's friends because I had no friends of my age who were into music and into rock and mm. like classic rock. So um, we were called the Gods of Traffic Lights. Strange name, but uh, we, we, did, we did a recording and that was a good time for me because that was my first taste of, you know, working with, you know, semi-professional musicians who had half a clue about recording and getting a good sound. They had nice gear um, and they were really, really great to me. That was kind of, you know, I was cutting my teeth with, with older guys. That was just a superb learning curve for me. So that was my first band. And then my first real band was a band called Patriarchal Death Machine, which was a hardcore punk band. We were a mm. three piece and man, that was a fun, fun band. We toured Australia. We did two studio albums. Uh, we got signed to a um, record label and that was a lot of fun. And that band lasted for nearly 10 years. 
Wow, it's, that's it was good. amazing. Yeah, I look back and go, wow. But uh, you know, bands are, are um, like relationships, and uh, sometimes you need a break. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> Do you remember your first major gig? Yes, in fact, I have a I have a photo of it, and I um, posted it on my Instagram the other day. Uh, underscore mg drums. It was uh, out the back of the Exeter in town, and as a, I don't know, 18, 19-year-old, playing those pub and club gigs was a really, really good time for me because it was a great environment to sort of, you know, obviously showcase what you're about, but it was great, you know, building confidence as well because... So many awesome bands have gone through there and, you know, that's kind of the rite of passage, obviously, for, for a lot of Adelaide bands is to go through those um, those gigs in town. And, yeah, uh, yeah I'll never forget. It was, um, it was a great time. And, you know, I mean, look, I've done a ton of gigs, but I think the most memorable ones were the smaller pub gigs where it's a little bit more intimate. People are there to see you. You know, mm. it's not like you're playing to a thousand people by default because you're at a festival. You know, you're playing to fans of your band. And even if there's a hundred people there, they're all moshing and screaming and going for you. And as a um, 19 year old, that was, um, yeah, just, ex- yeah, the hard and fast music was, was definitely a fun, a fun way to go. Excellent. So what was the first job that you had after you left school? Oh, the first job I had, I was a cabinet maker. So, you know, because at 18, you know, I thought I was going to do music for the rest of my life and things were going to be sweet. And mum and dad said, hey, you finished year 12, Michael, how about getting a job? So we looked in the paper and cabinet maker came up for, you know, like a trades assistant. So I was a TA for a cabinet maker and um, ended up doing the course and getting my cabinet making, uh, you know, pieces of paper and all that. So that was my first job and I really enjoyed it. This was years ago. And then in 2009, I went overseas. I was gone for three or four months and then I came back and I went to get some more cabinet making jobs and they said, uh, nah, don't do it. Unless you work for yourself, it's, uh, it's a dying industry. So yeah, I, I moved on to other jobs after that, but uh, I have fond memories of making some really nice uh, pieces of furniture. So, yeah, that was my first gig. Well, it's good to have a backup, isn't it? You've got to have some skills. I mean, my, my parents encouraged me. That, you know, there was no pressure to go to university. It was more finish year 12 so you've got the option and do whatever you want after that you know either you're um you know my dad used to say either you're earning or you're learning one of the two so you know getting a trade was good and then ended up getting another trade as a orthotics technician so I used to make orthotics for people which was a bit of a different job but that was really enjoyable and and you know it's a means to an end you know having those jobs one, it kept me grounded. It, you know, gave me a wage to, you know, get my living situation in order, buy some really nice gear for myself, you know, um, music-wise. You know, 
I didn't want to fit under the umbrella of the struggling musician, you know, yeah. because uh, if you're a creative, you know, you have to work at it every day. I, I don't believe in sitting there waiting for inspiration. That's that's a load of bull if you ask me. you you got to work at it every single day, even if it takes you, you know, X amount, you, you sort of have to be working at it. And your life has to have balance as well. For me, balance has been like really important and, and having the jobs in my life plus the music have, um, have really helped with that. Mm, yeah. Do you have a memorable gig story, good or bad, that you'd like to share? <laughs> a memorable gig story? Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, look, there's been plenty, but I, I must say, uh, and I think you were there. Weren't we on Rock the Boat together? On we the were. Cruise? Yeah, on we the were. cruise. Yeah. Going to New Caledonia and mm-hmm. playing, you know, on the cruise ship for a week. That was insane. It was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, it's, it was amazing. Um, I, and I think the most memorable ones, you know, as a whole, you know, are the ones where you're, you're away for a period of time and you're, you know, and you're touring you know, and all the memories sort of roll into one. You know, that gig on the boat was fantastic. I mean, you know, shitloads of people, good vibe. And, you know, everyone's there to, to do the same thing. So um, as far as a sort of gig story, I mean, I wasn't doing the gig, but, I mean, here's, here's one. I, uh, way back in 2009, I went to... Las Vegas to audition for Cirque du Soleil and the Blue Man Group. Mm-hmm. And I had bought my tickets to go to America. And um, then the global financial crisis happened and they called off auditions, which was really disappointing for us. But we ended up meeting some of the Blue Men and uh, it was great. We befriended them and, and became mates on social media and whatnot. And, you know, we got to see some shows for free. We, we got around Vegas and, and um, had a really good time with them, you know, just as friends. And, you know, we were Aussies, so they, they just loved us. But uh, many years later, 2017, I'm in, in Munich in Germany and I see on Facebook that this blue man friend of mine is playing with the Blue Men in Germany, in Munich, that night, 100 metres from my hotel. Oh, so, that's handy. <laughs> oh, my God. And, and it was one of those moments where, like, you think, man, I could be any place in the world right now doing anything, and I'm right here, and this is all just happening. And so we met. He said, man, how freaky is this? We, we met up. We had dinner. We talked. Um, hung out with with the band. They took me backstage and, you know, ran me through all the gear and, you know, and uh, so I get to the gig and on the big screen, they have like, uh, the Blue Men do these funny kind of, you know, they have like a bit of a, a narrative going on, you know, just with words like mm. subtitles on a screen. And all of a sudden my name pops up. And I don't speak German, so I nudged the guy next to me. I said, excuse me, do you speak English? And he said, yes. I said, what does that say? That's my name. And he says, oh, if Michael Jafrida is in the crowd, can you please stand up? So I stood up 
out mm. of everyone. And then all of a sudden the whole, you know, this is like, I don't know, 3,000 people just start cheering and cheering my name. And it was my cheeky friend from the Blue Man who told the production crew to point me out and basically embarrass me in front of the whole, <laughs> in front of the whole, um, you know, the whole crowd. And, but that was his way of finding out where I was in the crowd so that mm. he could kind of bring me backstage afterwards. So to answer your question about a, you know, a memorable gig experience, I think those experiences are more memorable for me than the gigs themselves. The gigs kind of all roll into one. It's the kind of extra little things that happen outside of the gig that become most memorable for me. So yeah. um, that, w- that was just one of those moments, like I said, you know, right time, right place. And it's just like, wow, p- you know, pinch yourself moment. Yeah, no, that's a great story. Is there a band that you wish that you'd had the opportunity to play with? Oh, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a hard question only because, you know, I'm always, you know, trying to reach for the stars, but I, I try and be um, realistic as well. You know, uh, okay, yeah, here's one. Um, I remember being young and working for disc edits at the time with the late Neville Clark, rest in peace. Sean Timms walked in and he was playing with uh, Unitopia at the time and I was listening to their albums and I looked up to them because they're, you know, great, great prog rock Adelaide band. Mm. And uh, I remember saying to him, oh, yeah, I'm a drummer, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, I wish you told me two weeks ago we had auditions and we already picked a guy. And, um, you know, that's just how it worked out. But, um, you know, Unitopia would have been a good one. Mm. I mean, look, I love you know, my progressive, hard, you know, punk and metal and stuff like that. I love a band called the Dillinger Escape Plan. Mm-hmm. I would love to play that sort of stuff. But, you know, I mean, look, my my drum idol was Ian Pace from Deep Purple. Mm. And, um, you know, wow, if I could have played for, you know, it's totally reaching for the stars now, but if, if – uh, you know, I was able to play with someone like Deep Purple. That would have just been amazing. And then, you know, you up it a notch technique-wise and, and style-wise, you know, bands like Judas Priest, you know, with that technical, just insane metal um, vibe that they have, that would have been amazing too. So I don't really think about that stuff too often, to be honest, but mm. I guess dreaming about it, keeps you inspired so there's many bands I mean look hey imagine playing for Rush taking Neil Peart's seat you know that's that's not going to happen but uh, I can still (laughs) dream so yeah you can always dream that's right how do you prepare yourself before a show I'm definitely an over preparer I come into every situation extremely over prepared only because, you know, my job as a drummer is, is to be very solid. You know, I, it's a visual instrument as well. So if I'm working with musicians I've never worked before, worked with before, it's, it's my obligation to be quite visual and, you know, set up cues. And basically, I guess as a drummer, you know, I want to be a leader in a musical sense 
even though I'm not the leader of the band. You know, I will listen to those songs. For example, if I've got a um, Machine Head gig with, with the Deep Purple Tribute Band coming up, I listen to nothing but that set list for a month straight. I will not listen to any other music for the month. Um, I'm not sure if other people work that way, but for me, um, especially with, you know, I've got a five-month-old son, I'm, I'm busy, I work, um, I'm trying to be productive as much as I can. So you're not always on the drum kit. And um, I say this to a lot of my students, you don't have to be on the drum kit to practice. You can practice in your mind. You know, it all starts in your head and it all starts with visualizing and conceptualizing what you're going to do. Um, and all the physical stuff, you know, that comes afterwards. If, if you're prepared mentally, you will get the job done. And I love going into a situation and um, having people comment on, you know, wow, man, you played the songs perfectly or really love your feel or, um, you know, mate, you, you made us play better. You know, that, that's my mission as a drummer. Sometimes if I don't have the time to be prepared, I would just go in there and absolutely wing it and pretend like I'm prepared. And hey, most people do that on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's no different with music. If you've got the skills and you've got um, your toolbox of, um, of tricks, then you can just call on that anytime you like. Hmm. How has the pandemic impacted you as an artist? I would have to say positively. Mm -hmm. for two reasons. One, uh, gigging is fantastic, but it was never my wage. It was always a bonus. Gigging was always that nice little kick um, that you would get with some extra money. So, you know, early in the piece, you know, in one of your previous questions, you know, obviously with my, my other jobs and other bits of income, you know, losing the gigs has been frustrating, yeah. but it, ha it hasn't waned any of my um, enthusiasm. So on the positive side, it's given me the opportunity to record more, do some, do some drum videos, you know, practice my butt off. And basically all the things that I wanted to work on as an individual and as an artist, I've been able to do that in the last mm. 18 months. You know, anyone who's, um, you know, I know there are people out there that have lost their livelihood and that, that completely sucks. And, you know, I can't comment about what they're going through, but all I can say from my standpoint is, you know, every opportunity is, is a chance to, to better yourself. And I want to be successful. And I guess, you know, success is, is moving from, you know, challenge to challenge you know, without the loss of um, any enthusiasm. So for me, being able to practice more, do those sorts of things has, has been great because uh, I'll tell you right now, my, my laptop is way more reliable than four other dudes, you know, trying, trying to get a band together and trying to get people on the same page is very, very hard. Mm, it is. So as, as a drummer who who does, you know, a bit of session work and kind of, you know, drummers are quite hardworking and, and I'll, you know, and I'll have to say, you know, probably slightly more disciplined than 
a lot of other musicians. Um, and that's just in our nature because, you know, we're, we're quite OCD. We have a big responsibility keeping, you know, the band sort of tight um, and making them sound good. So for me, it's been a great opportunity to go, you know what, I'm going to say no to the things I don't want to do. And I'm going to say yes to all of the things that I need to do because uh, people find excuses not to do things every day. Um, for me, there's always a reason to, um, to do something to, to better yourself and to learn new skills. I mean, you know, time at home, we've got the internet at our disposal, like, you know, download a course, you know, do some learning, you know, and uh, yeah, don't search all four corners of the internet because you'll end up confusing yourself. But sticking to uh, a plan that you want to achieve for yourself, that, that's been my mega, mega positive outcome during this uh, pandemic. So, and hey, gigs have been cancelled. They've been pulled out from underneath me, but um, I've been expecting it. So it's not a great disappointment. It's sort of just how it is. I don't feel sorry for, I mean, I do, but I, I feel for the um, venues who are struggling. Yes. It's the yeah. venues, you know, musicians. Yeah, we've got our rent. We've got this. We've got that, um, you know, mortgages and whatnot. Um, but, uh, you know, the venues who rely on punters, you know, that's that's big money. And, um, you know, they're the ones that are, that are truly missing out. And, and it's very unfortunate. So if people can find the positives, then, you know, that's that's mega. Yeah. And you've certainly become a lot more active on your social media during this period as well, haven't you? Yes, yes, I have. That was, a, that was a mission of mine. And not to mention, you know, I have faith in my abilities, but there's, there's, you know, everyone has, I guess, a fear of putting themselves out there and just seeing what will happen. And I thought, no, this is something I have to, I have to do. And I'm, you know, I'm only in competition with myself when it comes to this sort of thing. But, you know, recording, it's, it's given me the chance to do a bunch of session work. You know, the videos, it gives me a chance to, to be seen. And, um, you know, I feel really good about starting to up my game, you know, on my social media platforms because, you know, I don't think people understand how much work goes into it you know, the 20 plus years of getting to a point where you can play, then you have to spend X amount of hours recording, editing, filming, slapping it all together, making sure it sounds good, looks good, um, you know, having all of your socials in order. And I'm still learning. Um, I'm just, I guess I got to the point where I couldn't wait anymore and I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So I learned to get rid of that perfectionist side of me and just put it out. Because yeah. if people have been telling me that I'm a, you know, I'm this and that, man, you, you play great, whatever. I, I love the compliments and it gives me confidence. But, you know, it's, 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 the, it's the battle within yourself that keeps you held back. So me putting my stuff out there has been a massive game changer for me not only um, confidence-wise, but the ability to 
you know, I've been asked to record other bands. People have dug my sound and my videos and gone, hey, would you like to record my band? And now I'm, you know, getting into the area of, um, you know, recording not just for myself, but for other people too. So, and social media, I mean, look, it's it's at our fingertips. I, I figure I can either get sucked into it or I can exploit it. So I figure exploiting it would be the, uh, the better option for uh, an artist like myself. Absolutely. Well done. (laughs) If you you could offer only one tip to a brand new drummer, what would it be? A brand new tip? I would, I would tell them just to listen, 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 listen to music you love and, and just go slow and be patient. I mean, I tell my students all the time, you're going to make a billion mistakes. Mistakes are inevitable. You're going to, you know, you're going to fail at at some point and you're going to feel like it's never going to get better. Um, But it does. And you just have to stick at it. Um, If you're passionate about it, put in the work. You know, you have to put in the work and you have to be disciplined. You know, time can be your best friend or it can be your enemy. So using your time wisely, um, you know, looking at that clock and, you know, treat it as if, you know, it, it's a non-negotiable. People that exercise or go for walks, you know, that's their non-negotiable every day. They, they have to do it. And, you know, practicing, going slow, listening to music you love and really just, you know, closing your eyes and listening to the music is, um, is my big tip for them. You know, I mean, it's quite a broad, broad subject, you know, speaking to a, a new drummer, but yeah, I would, I would absolutely just tell them to um, be patient, just be patient. Don't hit so hard. <laughs> Excellent. Vic, who are your top three local drummers? Oh, top three local drummers. Um, oh. Okay, uh, I would have to say, well, you know, you'd, you'd have to say Ben Todd for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I really, oh, geez, who else? Um, I really dig uh, Liam Weedle as well, mm-hmm. um, great metal drummer. And another drummer that I really, really like and, and admire is uh, Eli Green. So, yeah, Eli, Eli Green, um, Ben Todd, and Liam Weedle. Excellent. To further that, you know, they've liked those guys because they've got their own individual style. They're sort of unapologetic about what they do. And, you know, they're passionate about, you know, how they do it. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's funny. I played a, a fringe show beginning of 2020 before the pandemic hit. and it was a great show. And then I got asked to do the same show the next year, but timing wise and with my son being born, I just, I just, I didn't want to commit. And so the next person they called was Ben Todd. Mm -hmm. And although I couldn't play the gig, which was, you know, it it is what it is. It's, it's not sad. It's just, you know, I couldn't do it. It was nice to know that the, uh, that the person they called to fill in for me was Ben Todd. So that was kind of like a little bit of a, um, you know, 
that was, that was like a, you know, a compliment without being a compliment. I said, oh, well, if they're getting Ben Todd to uh, do the show, then I, I, I guess I must be half decent. So, <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, those, those three guys, definitely check them out. Well, I have interviewed Ben and yeah. I have interviewed Eli. Yes. Oh, cool. So there's only one out of those three that I haven't. All right. Yes. Yes. I Liam's might have to get quite a that. prolific, <laughs> prolific metal drummer, and he's he's very busy and and does a lot. So yeah, he would be uh, he'd be worth a go to. I want you to choose the three most important to you from the following five. We have groove, creativity, chops, technique, and time. Out of those five, which three are most important to you? Time, groove, and technique. What were the other two that I missed out? Creativity and chops. Yep. Mm. Uh, all right, so there's a reason I left those two out. So time, groove, and technique are super, super important. Without those three, you cannot achieve the other two. So, you know, everything starts with technique. Uh, most people are confused. Technique is not speed. Technique is, is motion um, and movement. And, you know, when people talk about time, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, I guess there's an action and then there's a reaction. So when you're hitting a drum, that's the action. When your stick is in the air and your wrist is moving, that's the reaction. So there's there's a polar opposite to what happens. So when people are focusing on hitting the drum too much, they're not they're not thinking about the time and the space, which is essentially what drummers are doing. We're manipulating, bending and stretching time. So if you have no concept of time and space with your technique, then all the rest of the stuff falls apart. If if you've got time and space that's where groove happens that's where time happens and ultimately that leads to more chops and then ultimately that leads to more creativity so for me the technique is really important to start with and but it's also the hardest to start with because when a young player on any instrument is inspired they're always looking to be creative and they want to do the chops straight away, you know? It's like that meme of the guy who just skips all the steps and, and is trying to walk up the steps and just skips everything because he wants to play his favourite chops and he wants to mm. be creative. But, you know, to be a successful musician and especially a drummer, people aren't looking at your chops, your creativity or your technique as such. They're, they're mostly looking at your groove and time. Mm. And, you know, you have to remember as a drummer, you are working for the artist. They employed you because they want your creativity. But ultimately, you know, it's, it's their creative control that you're working with. So, um, you know, I have a saying, it, it, you know, I don't mess with creative control. If they want something from me, they'll get it. If I feel like I can be creative, then I'll do that too. But for me, that's a really great question, actually, Di, because a lot of people misinterpret 
what technique means and what it means for your playing overall. Let's just say, for example, you had amazing technique and no one asked you twice about it. Groove, time, and you'd slip creativity in there too because at the end of the day, you wanna have your own voice on the drums and on any instrument because that's what gives you a sound and that's what gets you employed and that's what happens with word of mouth when people say, hey, you gotta check this guy out. He's great groove, you know, good time or whatever. So yeah, those three, definitely. That's a great answer, thank you. Mick, if you could invite any musicians to play a concert with you anywhere in the world, you're on the kit, who would you call? Where would it be held? And what genre would the band be performing? Oh, okay, so the artists I would want, I would definitely love to have uh, Ben Weinman from the Dillinger Escape Plan on guitar. Mm-hmm. He's just incredible. I would absolutely, or oh, this is a tough one, I think I would love to have Mike Patton on vocals. As far as a bass player goes, Justin Chancellor from Tool. My mm. God, he's, mm. he's just amazing. And uh, Jordan Rudess on keys from Dream Theater and Liquid Tension Experiment. I'm just trying to think, oh, maybe I'll leave percussion out. I want the drums to myself. We would be playing somewhere like, uh, what is it that... Um, Red Rock in California, where they're, mm-hmm. where they're looking out onto all the sort of desert rocks there, and the band would be playing progressive rock and metal, which is my bag. So Ben Wyman, Mike Patton, Justin Chancellor, Jordan Rudess, and myself playing at Red Rocks, California, to 100,000 people. <laughs> Sounds like an amazing Sounds gig. like a dream. <laughs> Look forward to that one. <laughs> We can only dream, Mick. We can only dream. (laughs) Now, you've been on the road with the band quite a bit. Yes, I have. Yes, many roads. What's it like touring with a band? Touring with a band, look, I guess if you're, I mean, there's many different ways of touring. I mean, I've I've done the planes, the hotel rooms, you know, having everything paid for you, that sort of stuff. That's amazing because you're getting paid as well. But you're also, it's, it's a little bit easier. The, the touring becomes a little bit easier when you're, when you're flying and you've got a room to yourself and all that sort of stuff. Or even, even if you have to bunk with someone, that's fine. But on the road, on the road is great. On the road in Australia is not so great because it is a tough country to tour especially by van or by car. The distances are just massive. People get sluggish and tired and moody. But then there's also the other side where, you know, people are having a lot of fun and you get to really connect with your bandmates as well because you're in a, you know, confined space with them. Um, I mean, I've toured in everything from a VX Commodore wagon to a Toyota Hi-Ace to a tour bus. The vans are generally more fun because they're a little bit roomier. You've got more room to move. You've got your own gear in the back for one. So you you know that you're going to a gig that's gonna be comfortable with your own gear. You can sort of get caught up in, I guess, maybe not looking after yourself the way you should be, especially because it's a bit of a group mentality. You know, 
with, you know, drinking, smoking, carrying on and, and whatnot. That happened a lot in my 20s. You know, now that I'm, now that I'm in my 30s, it's definitely more of a, when you're on tour, it, it is a job now. So you have to be a little bit more responsible and sensible with what you're doing. But that also comes with age as well. I mean, when you can afford to take time off work and you're doing it for the love and you know that you're not going to make a cent back, but every bit of money goes back into the band, you know, it keeps the band going and it keeps keeps everything moving along but I miss touring a lot it is a lot of fun I don't know how I'm gonna go now that I've got a uh, five-month-old yeah uh, that's gonna make yeah, it a it's bit gonna make interesting, it interesting it? but I'll just uh, have to invite the family so I mean you know the, the yep. sort of tours I'm doing these days are the you know what I first talked about with, with the planes and the hotel rooms which is nice and, you know, that's an opportunity to involve my family. Sometimes, you know, letting those worlds collide can be very, very cool for your individual situation. You know, when you keep it separate and it's like, nah, nah, we're touring with the boys. It's... Sometimes people can get anxious. The guys will generally play up and it's not a fulfilling tour because you got to do a bunch of gigs but you forgot most of them, you know, mm. you felt like crap the whole time. Touring is amazing, but you really do have to look after yourself. And uh, like as a drummer, for example, you know, it's quite a physical instrument. So if, if you're not sort of carrying some sort of aerobic fitness with you, you know, if you don't walk or run or kind of look after yourself physically, touring will become a struggle. You see yeah. these mega rock stars and man, they are fit. They are fit and they work out because they know that when they go on tour, it's not as easy as just slamming beers and sitting back in a van. It does take its toll on the long roads, that's for sure. Mm, definitely. Mick, is there something that you've really tried to play that you couldn't get right or you weren't satisfied with the way that you played uh, it? Yes, yes, plenty of times. But it's never, it's never out of reach. It's just, I guess, like if you talk about practice, people ask how often should I practice? And it's like, well, it's a subjective question because if you practice only once a week, it's going to take you longer to reach your goal. It doesn't yeah. mean you're not progressing. It's just going to take you longer to progress. So with me learning stuff that's extremely hard, Again, it's all about the listening because I know I've got the tools and the chops in my toolbox. It's more about can I find the discipline to sit down and learn this properly? Because as drummers, we have a bad habit of just kind of, I guess, playing over stuff without thinking too much about the arrangement that the original drummer put in. And for me, when I'm doing a drum video, for example, I have to try and be, you know, I try and be 99% on what the other drummer's doing only because if they don't match up, it just sounds like a mess. But if I'm, yeah. you know, if I'm learning playing some tool, for example, it's so specific that you just have to spend the time. And when I don't get it, I don't get frustrated. I just walk away. And I'll come back another day because 
when you're learning something new, your brain takes a while to process it. And what's funny is if you leave it alone for two weeks and then hop back on your drum kit, it's going to come out in your playing. It's going to be there and you're going to go, wow, where did that come from? And the brain's really funny. You'll learn something, you won't get it right. And then two weeks later, you'll hop on the kit without even being warmed up and it will just come out. So Mm. learning stuff that's really difficult is about sort of bringing yourself back down to earth and going, well, yeah, you know, no matter what level you're at, professional, semi-professional, amateur, whatever, you have to put in that extra effort. And that's what really gets you through. And look, there's some stuff out there that I don't look at it and go, wow, I could never play that. I just think, well, I've never practiced that. I'm sure that if I did practice it, I Do you ever get bored with your own playing? Only when I know that I should be practicing. So if I'm on the kit and I have to stop myself and go, come on, Michael, you've been doing chops now for 30 minutes. It's time to actually get to work. That's the only time I'll kind of check myself and go, okay, it's time to be a little bit more disciplined because, you know, you're on the clock. And these days things have changed for me. I don't have a studio at home anymore. It belongs to my son now. So, you know, I have to pay to go hire out a space for five to six hours. And when I'm paying to be on the clock, I mean, I can claim it, of course, as a musician, but I picture it as I'm investing in myself And if I'm going to do that, and if I'm on the clock, and if I'm spending money, every minute counts. People say they practice for eight hours a day. They're lying because you have to have breaks. You have to check yourself. You have to kind of, you know, see if that was recorded okay. You know, no one practices for eight hours straight. Book an eight-hour block, and maybe you might get five hours of solid practice out of that. So that's my approach to practice and and getting better. Most musicians should feel really lucky if they have a space at home where they can practice and guitarists if you're listening, you guys don't have a uh, an instrument that's, you know, rocking, you know, 100 120 decibels unless you're plugged into your big Marshall stack. So you have to be efficient with your practice and use your time wisely because uh, drums are very very loud and no one likes practicing in on a practice pad. It's just not fun. (laughs) Fair enough. How many bands and projects are you currently involved with on a regular basis? I guess since the pandemic, things have changed a little bit. But currently I'm doing um, a lot of session work for a band called Full Frontal Lobotomy, who is uh, run by none other than the man himself, Pigsy. So um, I've been doing a lot of work for him, which has been really good. I really like his songs and I like the vibes. So that's that's kind of what I've been doing on an original front. And also I'm involved in a Alanis Morissette tribute show, which is looking to tour next year. Not generally my bag, but good good conditions. It's a very well-run business and I've done tribute acts with uh, this particular company, Pro Shows, before. Did an In Excess tribute, a Duran Duran tribute. 
But now with the uh, Alanis Morissette journey, uh, the show, that's looking to tour probably every major city in Australia next year. So that's my opportunity to, to go on tour and do the thing I love and, and get paid regardless of whether I dig the genre or not because I'll find any excuse to like it, especially when I'm working with um, really cool people. I mean, I have a few sort of, you know, private projects that I like doing with friends just for the love of it. Yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm starting to record bands and, and get some clients in, which has been really good. I guess to answer your question, I've only got the two bands on the go, the Alanis mm. thing and Full Frontal Lobotomy. And I've kind of been digging that because I don't have to spend too much time on it and I can spend more time doing my own things. So, I mean, look, I would love to be doing another original band that's right up my alley. But, you know, I've had, to, I've had to step away from that sort of stuff for a few reasons, just because of very hard to keep bandmates motivated. And when you're doing most of the work and uh, other people aren't lifting a finger, it's, it's, a, it's a little difficult to maintain that motivation to keep an original band going, even if it's something you really, really love. But sometimes you just have to let go and, and get on with it. Yeah, true. Where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? Oh, next 10 years. Definitely having a studio back at my house. Uh, that's that's yeah. definitely <laughs> something in the next 10 years. Next 10 years, uh, that's a funny one because I'm teaching at the moment, so I teach drums. That's my, my full-time gig. What I would like to do is definitely up my online presence Actually, no, I know what I want to do. In, in 10 years, I want to have my own drum products, whether it's uh, online learning courses, books, like ebooks, videos, and basically some more educational content because um, I do love to teach and I do love to inspire young people and you know even adults as well who want to learn the drums so I think my mission is is more of a I don't know entrepreneurial style look at furthering my my career as just a drummer because let's face it drummers don't get um don't get royalties when it comes to big big bands and songs and, and stuff like that. So we kind of have to pave our own way with uh, session work and educational stuff. So I think that's where I see myself. I see myself doing more educational stuff and, uh, you know, upping my online presence and, you know, doing some, some drum covers and, and stuff like that, just keeping myself busy. You know, I always said I, I don't really care about the fame. I just want the money. <laughs> Fair enough too. What do you hope to have achieved before you do lay down the sticks for the last time? Oh. I would really I mean I've, you know, I dream about it. The big the big festival shows, the big 50,000 plus people during the day, your stage right or whatever. 
looking out, knowing that it's, you know, your turn next with an original band that you love and that everyone's in for the same reasons. I think that old school kind of band of brothers hitting the road, doing big, big gigs and, you know, making a living from that, that's, that's something that I would love to happen. You know, whether it happens or not, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's going to bother me, but that's, that's just a dream of mine and something I've always pictured, you know, that big sort of walking out onto the massive stage, having those people in front of you. And I think more so the real reason for me dreaming about that is, you know, winning over new fans in the moment, not trying so hard to go, hey, hey, look at my band, check us out at a lower level, you know, imagine having your, your stuff just played live, 110% on stage, no holds barred, so, so to speak, and just go, just go for it. That's, uh, that's something I'd really like to experience before I put the sticks down, which I don't think I will. I always said, I'm going to die with the sticks in, in my hand and I'm going to record it. <laughs> Fair enough. Great answer. <laughs> Obviously, I'm on YouTube, Michael Jafrida underscore MG Drums with um, Instagram, and you'll find me as MG Drums on Facebook and my own personal page. Excellent. Before we end our chat today, I'm going to ask Mick 20 quick random questions or as many as we can get through in the space of two minutes to close the interview. Are you ready, Mick? I'm ready, Di. Your time starts now. What was the first song you learnt to play? Highway Star. Which three bands have been referred to as the unholy trinity of British hard rock and heavy metal? Judas Priest. British uh, hard rock. <laughs> British British hard rock, um, Zeppelin, Sabbath, Deep Purple. Yes. What was the first album that you purchased? Spider Bay, Ivy and the Big Apples. In what year was the band Rush inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? 2016. 2013. <clears throat> Name a band you wish you'd seen play live. Pantera. The band Deep Purple were originally called what? I don't know. Roundabout. The most sticks that you've dropped during a gig? Five. (laughs) What was the first concert that you went to? Deep Purple, louder than ever. Name a famous drummer that you'd like to meet. Stuart Copeland. Your favourite Deep Purple song to play? Burn. What album do you play the most? Deep Purple, Made in Japan. What was the first single that you purchased? Uh, Testify, Rage Against the Machine. Name a music genre that you've never played. Country. Name one thing you cannot live without. Uh, My family. What was the last concert that you went to? 
Dillinger escape plan. What is your biggest fear? Fear itself. Oh, we've run out of time. Hang on, just stop that. Thank you once again, Mick, for joining me for the Bandit About podcast today. You've been great to chat to and I hope that everyone who listens finds this as enjoyable as I did. Oh, me too, Di. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for listening. Um, get around Di and her podcast, people. Very, very cool. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Easy. All of the information and links relating to today's interview can be found in the show notes. And if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please share the link with your friends. Until next week, it's goodbye from me, Di, Bandit About, proudly supporting live music. Bye. <laughs>